we're calling this trading kingdoms because Nehemiah starts out the book of named after him and he's the cupbearer to a king. By the end of the book, he's not the cupbearer. He has no job in Babylon. He has no life in Babylon. He's traded his whole location and his life purpose and everything to be back in a rebuilt Jerusalem, back in Israel, part of God's people again. And it got me thinking, why does he trade kingdoms? And how does he do it? Because it has applications for us. Following Christ, in many ways, is an exchange of kingdoms. There can be a decisive moment when you say, I'm following Christ now. He really is Lord. But there's still a process that unfolds. Nehemiah didn't just move back to Jerusalem and suddenly transform everything. And in the same way for us, we can say, I'm no longer listening to Satan. But our desires and our fears and our pleasures might still be getting worked out or changed. What we do, how we live, what we say, they're not immediately done. If you've chosen Christ as Lord, you've traded kingdoms, but there's still work to be done. Today we'll do chapter 1 of Nehemiah. I invite you to read verses 1 through 3 with me. God's word says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire." Just as a quick backstory, this is talking about Jerusalem destroyed. There's been a military battle. We'll go into this a little bit more, but it's not too hard for right now. Babylon's got an army. They're a massive world power. They attack Israel. They destroy Jerusalem. Nehemiah is put into service for the king, and he's living in Babylon, living in Susa, like it talks about. He's there, and he hears about the destruction back in Jerusalem. That's what this is talking about. The captivity are the people who are still back in Jerusalem. Not too long ago, I saw a child denying reality. You probably wonder, what do I mean? Well, this child was playing outside on a sidewalk, and the sidewalk went up to a wall of a building. And this child thought it's fun to run around outside like children will. So the child's running all over the place, and then the child focuses a little bit, and it's running back and forth on the sidewalk. And it's really fun to run, I could tell from watching this kid run. And then the kid thought, it'd be more fun to cover my eyes and run. So this child gets a hat, some pulls the hat down over the eyes and is running all over the place with its eyes closed. Still having a lot of fun. They were running away from the building. For reasons unknown to me, the child said, I think I'm going to run back toward the building. You can imagine what happened. The child crashed into the wall face first because it wasn't looking. Hat down, runs right into the wall. You can expect crying, bloody nose, tears, wailing, screaming, moms and dad, mom and dad comforting. Total disaster for this poor little child. I shouldn't say total disaster. They were better in like, you know, eight minutes or whatever. But at the time, absolute misery. Why do we deny reality? Why is this kid not thinking about a wall? Now, the practical answer is, well, they had their eyes closed. But why do we deny reality? Why don't we think about the way things really are? Sometimes we're alone in a situation, and that's part of denying reality. I would ask you are, you, are you facing reality in community? 
I think humans tend to practice denial quite a bit. And it's easy when a kid runs into a wall to be like, come on, what are you doing? But a lot of life situations aren't that different. We have blinders on. We're sort of running around having a good time until we're not paying attention to something. God's intention for us is to collaborate, to connect with people, to be in community, dealing with the reality of our lives. I say this because in the opening verses of these, of these verses, this book, Nehemiah, he says, Hanani, one of my brothers and some men from Judah came. And they talked about reality. They talked about what things were like in Jerusalem, what things were like for people, what things were like for the walls. This was a community act. It was an adventure of a group of people who looked at things together. God welcomes his people to practice community. That's why we're having a church conversation on September 10th. We want to dialogue together. I'd like to encourage you to reject denial. Whatever you would like to deny, let me encourage you, denial won't overcome some disaster. If the disaster is already there, denial's not going to help. What will help us? Well, number one, God listens to us. Number two, God helps us. Nehemiah, you'll see later as we read farther, he gets repentant. He gets contrite, which is a big word for just saying he's sincerely sorry about the way things are. He's bothered by the way things are, and we'll get farther into that, but he's honest before God. He asks God for compassion, and he gets it. He's asking God for what God ultimately wants on earth. One way to overcome denial is who you hang around with. I go back to this community idea. Are you hanging around with people who've actually seen something? They can give a faithful record of it. They can talk with you about what's going on because they've seen it. This week, I was thinking through something. I had seen something. I'd experienced something with, with other people. And I knew how I saw it. But then I started talking with them. And I said, this is what I think of this situation. But what did you see? What did you experience? And I realized I was way off. <laughs> like, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. It wasn't as big as, you know, it just, it totally changed. As the more I talked, I was like, oh, they knew more than I did. And I knew that much, but I didn't think how wrong I was until I started listening to people who knew more than I did. And then I realized, whoa, I'm <laughs> glad I wasn't running around, right? There was a wall coming and I saw it because I was listening to other people. There's a second piece to this, getting this clarity in community. It's, are you praying with other people? I'm going to skip ahead for just a moment to verse 11. Nehemiah prays. He's in the middle of a prayer, and as he does this, he says, May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. That's a lot of language that we don't exactly use every day, but Nehemiah is saying, Would you be attentive to my prayer and the prayer of your servants? He realized, I'm not the only one praying. There's other people praying, and it's good. They ought to be praying with you. When other people are praying, they can help you define reality. A third step out of denial is comparing what you see with God's word. I'm going to go back a few verses to verse 8 to just quickly mention what Nehemiah does. Again, in prayer, he says to the Lord, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Nehemiah is living in the Babylonian captivity. He's the cupbearer to the king. He must be off work at this moment, but he's praying this prayer, and he says, what you told Moses a long time ago about unfaithfulness is true right now. We're living among the nations. God's word has defined Nehemiah's reality. So first we see Nehemiah is facing reality in community. That's how trading kingdoms gets off to a good start. Now let's consider verse 4. 
Nehemiah said, or the book of Nehemiah says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Earlier this summer, I was sitting at our sitting on our back porch. We have a big picnic table. It's huge. It's heavy. It's been around a long time, and we're sitting on it. And while we're sitting on it, it starts to creak and to groan and to crack. It's old. It's been painted many times, but lo and behold, it starts to creak and groan and crack because one of the boards is rotting. And somebody starts to feel pretty uncomfortable about this, and they're like, what's going on? Well, the board was so rotten that when a person sat on it, it completely split through eventually. So in the middle of this time hanging out with our friends, the board splits. Now I ask you a simple question. Was I bothered by it? No, I wasn't sitting in that place. My board was great. Theirs was the one that had the, it wasn't my board, right? Like I was sitting on a really strong two by 12. I don't know why the other two by 12 was so rotten because it's attached to the same table, but where I'm sitting, things are great. I wasn't disturbed at all. I said, just slide down, you know, like we'll fix it later, but just slide down. And they did, you know, they just moved on down. When you overcome denial, what disturbs you? What disturbs you? Nehemiah is deeply disturbed in verse 4. But he's not disturbed because he's on the seven ancient wonders of the world historic preservation committee. You know, they got those bronze plaques and go around, right? They think they had those and they could go around and put it on buildings and say, we're preserving this because he wasn't on some committee. Why is he so bothered by it? Is he trying to preserve architectural wonders of the world? We've got to bring the temple back just for historical significance or just kind of because it was a nice building. spent a lot of money on it. It's a shame to just let it sit there in ruins. Maybe we ought to kind of rebuild it. No, he's not into this stuff. The walls of the city are destroyed. The whole city's ruined. There's a devastated city without defenses. And he overcomes denial and he's disturbed. Can you imagine the job description, by the way, for Nehemiah? If this were like today's world and they put up like a job posting and Nehemiah gets out his phone when he's not the cupbearer and he's like, what's on Indeed right now? I want to get a job. Indeed, LinkedIn, he's checking. He finds it. Here it is. Refugee community seeks a competent construction worker. A nation needs to restore devastated buildings, roads, and other structures, especially in the former nation's capital. The successful candidate will recover building materials from the rubble, assess the fitness of building supplies, and raise torn down walls. You must be able to work as part of a team while rebuilding homes and businesses from the ground up. Experience in working on relevant projects, motivating teams, and using equipment is essential. You must have physical strength, endurance, and work well with your hands. Royal cupbearers and others who are accustomed to indoor work, regular hours, and well-prepared meals need not apply. Why would Nehemiah take this job? His disturbance defines his direction. He's bothered on the inside about something that God cares about. And it's the people that Nehemiah cares about. It's the will of God for the world that Nehemiah cares about. He's not just building a wall. He's not just restoring some construction project. He hears about Jews who had escaped and survived captivity, and they live in great distress and reproach. For Nehemiah, when he traded kingdoms, he deployed into a mess that's about people, and it's about God's glory. Trading kingdoms means we do what we do for people, for their sake. Trading kingdoms means we do what we do so that the world becomes more like God wanted it to be. In Nehemiah's case, God wanted a temple. 
He wanted to dwell with people. He wanted to be worshipped with people. He wanted to exist in our space and our time and be worshipped in a particular place. So he chose a people group. He transformed them into worshippers. He brought them out of Egypt. He placed them in the promised land. He gave them a sacred ground and he said, stand here and worship me. And come up here and do festivals and offer sacrifices and encounter my forgiveness and my love. And all of that gets destroyed. And Nehemiah is rightly stirred to do something. The God of heaven came down in his home, the place where he used to meet with people, is shattered and burned and demolished. Ugliness has replaced beauty. Shame has replaced confidence and love and hope. Fear has replaced love. Distress has replaced confidence. Reproach has replaced feeling like God's beloved people. And Nehemiah cares. So he does something. But where does he start? Where does he start with something so massive? When you trade kingdoms and you deploy into human misery, you're depending on God's help. So he prays. Look at verse 5. Nehemiah, I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel. Your servants confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your outstretched, sorry, by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. As Nehemiah prays, part of what's going on is he's saying, where does reality differ from God's standard? Well, in our church, we've essentially thought about reality for a long time, even before I was here. And Pastor Eric and the elders that were here all realized, and you with their support over the last several years did something that you know a lot about. We decided we had a priority for worshiping God. We were just going to be a group of people who said, we will praise him. We will worship him. Sundays, Tuesdays, all the time, worship's going to be part of our life. Secondly, we said we're going to be disciples who become more like Jesus. We're going to find ways to grow together and become more and more like Jesus. It's a priority for us. And lastly, reaching youth for Christ throughout Cape Cod. That's going to be a priority for us. It's, a, it's the mission of God, and we're going to be part of that. What are you stirred by? Helping to reach youth? Seeing your own identity transformed into Christ-likeness, becoming a worshiper and helping others do the same. I'd like to make a suggestion. When you identify your inspiration, when you have this disturbance inside of you that starts to point you in a particular direction, don't rush into action. Take some time before getting active. And see, Nehemiah in verse 4, he sat down and he wept. He didn't immediately take the first train out of Babylon and head to Jerusalem. He took some time and just wept and prayed and thought. 
He's about to disrupt his entire life, and it seems like he needs to work through some of the pain. He needs to make sense of the choices and the changes and the ways that he's going with his life. He goes through this grief. He fasts. He prays. He weeps. How long did he do this? How long should you do this? I don't think it's about time. I think it's about process. You can get real. You can get authentic. You can face the feelings. You can face the facts. If you haven't done it with other people, that's probably part of the process. Have some other people who are involved. God's doing a work in Nehemiah, and he gets alone with God for a while before he goes public with his purposes. In God's kingdom, looking throughout all the scriptures, prayerful preparation, being alone with God always happens before productive pursuits. Jesus did it before he chose the disciples. Nehemiah does it right here. There's some amount of time. It's not forever. Jesus only took a night before he chose the disciples. There's a sense that if you're walking with God regularly, you don't have to spend years waiting to go on your purpose, but you don't have to rush into it either. You can act, and you can seek God first. There's this interesting tidbit right at the end. Nehemiah's current position as cupbearer, we sort of joked about his new position. Doesn't seem very fit for it. He's used to working indoors. He probably hasn't had a callus in years. It's hard to get a callus when you're like holding a wine glass up and giving it to like a royal person. Like, do you, do you wear out your elbow joint doing that all the time and sort of have to use your shoulder more? We don't know. He's got a pretty easy job. But that's not what he's thinking about. It's almost like an afterthought. It's the last verse in his chapter. He finishes up his prayer and he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. What he says at the beginning of the chapter is great. He identifies himself as who? Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. In other words, he's saying, I'm a Jew. I think about who I am in light of who I came from, which is to say that I'm part of a people group, and I'm identifying myself as one of God's chosen people, not the job that I have, not the role that I have, not the cushy place in the palace where I spend all my time. He's far more concerned with God's work on earth. He's aware of reality. He knows he's in Babylon, the captivity, and all this stuff's on his mind. But he says, my heart is all about the work of, earth, of God on the earth. That's what I care about. That's what I'm thinking about. It's all about Jerusalem. God has a plan, and I care about that. God's worried about Jerusalem, and I'm concerned about that. A simple but hard reality comes to the surface for Nehemiah. He's cupbearer to the king. He's felt the disturbance. He's talked about it with God. He's reflected on what got him into this point, and he's talked with other believers, and now he's the cupbearer to the king. In other words, my present path in life has come up against the expectations of God for me. What will he do? Well, there's a hard reality here. He will have to choose what's uncomfortable and risky and costly to please God. See, Nehemiah gave up being cupbearer to go rebuild a demolished city. He literally went from the palace to a war zone, and not an ongoing war where some things weren't totally destroyed. It's like a city that's been destroyed and then abandoned and mostly neglected and under-resourced for several decades. Imagine the condition of a place like that. Several decades have gone by. He had the ultimate job, test the king's food, test the king's drink, and bring it to him and then wait a few hours and do it again. He gets to hang out with royalty. He gets to hang out with educated people, probably like, you know, secure, safe, all, everything he could want. He lives in, you know, it's just a great situation. And it's an easy job. Think about the job description for Nehemiah. Can you chew food in your mouth? Can you like, you know, cut it? I don't know how Babylonians, but can you, can you like, you know, cut food and take a little bite? Mm-hmm. 
How's your skill with drinking, Nehemiah? Are you able to like hold a cup with one hand and like take a little sip? Mm-hmm. Can you do it with the other hand? Well, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now let's try this, Nehemiah. Can you walk from over there at your post to over here to my throne? Because I'm not going to get up for my food. So you've got to be able to, can you walk over here without spilling the plate and like dumping stuff out? Mm-hmm, I can do that. Can you show me? Yeah, sure. So he shows it, you know. That's it. That's it. Think about what he's transitioning to. Trading kingdoms is messy business. Don't expect to keep your hands clean and your neat life orderly and put together. He's stepping into a history of people who have messed up and created a wreck, and he leaves behind the comfort and the clarity and the permanence of that job with total trust, total security for him. Great gig. He leaves it all behind to go rebuild a devastated city with people who are in great distress and reproach and poverty and have been like that for decades. Trading kingdoms is deploying into the world's mess, but depending on God's help. Do you know what Nehemiah, Abraham, Moses, and the Hebrews, when they left Egypt, all had in common? Or King David, the Apostle Paul, Nehemiah? None of them had it figured out beforehand. They were following God, they were honoring him, but they, had, they didn't have this figured out beforehand. They all stepped into the unknown saying, we have faith in God, we have clarity about what's wrong, now we're going to make plans, and as we go through Nehemiah, you'll see that, that they mostly succeed at this big goal. The apostle Paul started churches, just to give one example, by proclaiming the gospel in places that had no church. Do you know what having no church means? means they had no chairs. Like, who plays the music? Are we going to have music? Well, I don't know. We've never had a church before. Well, yeah, what are we going to do? Do we meet indoors? Do we meet outdoors? Do we want to have the sermon first and then the singing? Do we do singing? Ser- yeah. They don't know. Do we have ushers? Do we have elders? Do we have de- Well, I don't know. What's an elder? What's it? They didn't have it, right? They're figuring it out. They've never had a church before. Paul has many unanswered questions. Nehemiah, many unanswered questions. When he says, I'm the cupbearer to the king, he's saying, I'm unqualified for the role. He knew what the job description was, right? Cupbearers need not apply to be construction management supervisor for the entire rebuilding of a huge city. But he prays for God to make him successful. He says, God, would you give me compassion? Would you have mercy on me? Would you show me that you're good? His prayer has several key elements. We won't go into all of them right now, but he prays frequently. He prays with other people. He's loyal to who God is. He's awareness of what's, he's got awareness of what's wrong in his life, his people's life. He works through all of that stuff and he asks for God's power and compassion. If this process you go through someday brings you to tears, let them dry, work through that part of it. But whether it does or not, bring what you see into God's presence through prayer. Depend on God's help when you trade kingdoms. God will welcome you as his precious child. This is a God who can meet all our needs according to his glorious riches. He doesn't think more of Nehemiah than you. He doesn't think less of you, less of Nehemiah. And you can plan and pray and save up resources and design strategies, and that's all good. But at the end of the day, when you trade kingdoms and you're deployed into human misery, you're depending on God's help. There's incredible news in that because God promises to help. When it came to the church, Christ said, I will build my church. And that's how Paul did it and Ephesus, and Corinth, and Colossae, and all these other cities. It's how it happened here in Hyannis, Massachusetts. It's how it's happening even now. There's a wonderful song called Be Still My Soul. 
says, be still my soul. Your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Think about that. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. This God who calls Nehemiah is the same God who helped people conquer the promised land. God will finish what he started. Think about amazing grace, the third verse of that. The song says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace shall bring me home. Trading kingdoms is messy, but it's worth it. You'll see lives changed. There'll be dirty hands, and there'll be chaos, and there'll be struggles. But all of that is a small price to pay for God's will done on earth. Nehemiah's work, as difficult and messy and disruptive to his path as it was, ultimately fit into God's bigger picture in all of Scripture. And we'll see this week after week after week. What Nehemiah's doing on earth in a particular place and time fits into a much bigger work that God does across the centuries so that Israel continues to be a nation out of which will come the Messiah. You needed a Jerusalem so that Jesus could go up, right? That's, that's the, that's, this is the place where Jesus was born and raised and learned to follow God. So Nehemiah's work on the walls is creating a place for the Messiah someday. Depend on God's mercy. Deploy into human misery. Your service won't be perfect, but it'll fit into God's mission. As we go, I'm going to stay up here after worship so I can pray with you, chat with you, talk about this, talk about other things that might be on your mind. But as you go, I want you to know that a key pillar of our faith and worship is that God first loved us. We are wanted here. God is glad that we're here. In John 14, Jesus is meeting with his disciples last week of his life on earth. And as you go out into the mission of God, I just want you to recognize what Christ has done. This, this Christ that, again, we just don't even have time today. We'll, we'll work to include more and more of Christ. But he comes up so much in the New Testament, of course. But the Old Testament is pointing us forward to him. And much, much later in the story of Scripture, Christ is gathered with his disciples last week of his life in John 14. And one of the disciples, Judas, not Iscariot, says to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. That's the God we've worshipped today. He's dis disclosed himself to us. He has said, Deploy into the world's misery. Depend on my help. I'm with you. I was with Nehemiah and I'm with you. He's disclosed himself to us. He's not disclosed himself to everybody, but he's disclosed himself to you this morning. Now's our opportunity to love him this afternoon, this week, to keep obeying his word, to keep honoring what he said, and to find out that he keeps his word. We get to see that he comes to us throughout this week and he makes his home with us. He wants to be with us. He's glad you're here. Please join me in a moment of prayer. And after the service, if you'd love to talk, I'd love to do so. Otherwise, you can have great fellowship with one another. Father, we thank you so much. And Jesus, we thank you. What you said all those centuries ago to those disciples was disclosing yourself to them. And you've disclosed more of yourself to us this morning. It is such a gift. It is such a gift. We walk through life with all the things that we need to do and want to do and all the rest of that. 
And then we step back from that, we slow down, we get out of that rhythm for just a few hours on a Sunday morning and you come and you disclose yourself to us. And we thank you, most of us, any exposure that we have to misery, any exposure that we have to brokenness, it it does sometimes happen at our kitchen tables, it does sometimes happen in our lives, but a lot of times it's pretty far removed. Some other place, some other situation, some other group of people, and we, we kind of get it, but this morning you're talking to us in a new way of thinking about misery. Thinking about the misery and looking at it as an opportunity that maybe you're calling us to obey you. That we are meant to be part of what you want to do. And it may be overwhelming for us. We may feel unqualified for it. We may be scared by it. And we work through it. And we find out that we're going to engage that situation and, and honor you. So I pray for these people. I pray for myself. It may not be this week. It may not be for another month. It may not be for a little while. But I pray that we would discover together, oh, you've got a purpose for us. Oh, you're bringing something to our attention that disturbs us, and we need to work through it in community with a few other people. And we discover your will in the process of that. And we, we get involved. And we're dependent on you. We're dependent on you. If it comes now or it takes a few months, we are dependent on you. We all have our own story. We could all have our own long prayer And it starts out in this place and brings up this from the past and brings up that from the past and talks about what you've said. But we're asking now for your help. We're asking that you'd be compassionate on us and on our community so that your light can shine when all else fades. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.